Let's pray. God, this is your word. And it is breathed out by you. And it is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that we, your people, uh, may be perfectly equipped for the good works that you have prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, Lord. And so, so Lord, uh, may your word be planted deeply. Uh, please tend it, water it, and bless it that it may grow. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Children, oh, even in ways, uh, five through fifth grade, please, you are dismissed. So thank you, God, for our, 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 our servants who are willing to pour into their lives today. And we got a Passover from today. That's wonderful. Praise God. So um, it was, right, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And a, uh, a common uh, family blessing around the table or, or exclamation around the table with Passover is next year in, in Jerusalem. So imagine this. Imagine that, uh, that you are a Jew in the time of Jesus. And you don't live in Jerusalem. You live far off. And for the first time in your life, you get to travel to Jerusalem for the time of the Passover and present uh, the, not just the temple tax, but, a, but an offering to be, uh, to be sacrificed for your family in the temple of, that's in Jerusalem. And you probably don't know what to expect. Imagine that you live in a town sort of like Loudoun, you know, not, not the big the big city, by any means. You've heard about the temple, of course. You've read the scripture, right? the, the, the five, these first five books, certainly, of the, the Torah that, that tell uh, how God instituted the tabernacle first. And he had, he had these instructions that were in, incredibly intricate and detailed about how it would be constructed and how he would be worshipped. You've read how Solomon built the temple, Right? And, and to make this sort of a permanent tabernacle. And you've, your mind has the imagery of how in Scripture it is written, how, how that was built. And these ornate cedar wood carvings in olive wood and gold and silver and precious stones. You know from your reading of the, the books of Scripture that uh, that this temple was destroyed 500 years ago by the Neo-Babylonians. And that you know that, that not too soon after it was destroyed, in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, that it was rebuilt. And be rebuilt larger eventually. And then under Herod, just recently, had been nearly doubled in size. And you think how blessed it will be to worship God in his holy temple. And though you've never seen it, again, you have an idea of what it's going to look like. And so along the way, as you're walking on your way to Jerusalem, you come across a group of people who are following this rabbi. And they're not the type of people you would expect to be following a famous rabbi. Some of them actually are just fishermen. 
that we're called. And they're talking about strange things. You've heard about this guy, John the Baptist, and you heard that even he says that this rabbi is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. One of them, a guy named Nathaniel, is talking about how Jesus somehow knew him, not just knew of him or about him, but actually knew what he was doing before he even saw him. Many are saying that Jesus has just been at this wedding in Cana and has turned water into wine. And people are calling him the Messiah, the Christ in, in, in John's Greek, and the Messiah. And they're anticipating what will happen when this promised Messiah comes into the temple. And now you're starting to think some pretty grand thoughts. If this man truly is who they say he is, what will happen when the Messiah comes into the temple in Jerusalem on Passover? Is this when the oppressors are driven out? Is this when the kingdom of God is reestablished on earth? What kinds of signs and miracles is this Messiah going to, to perform in the temple in Passover? And so now you're here in Jerusalem. As you approach, you could see from a long way off the sun hitting the walls of the temple, and it is magnificent. And as you get closer, it is overwhelming. Your mind's eye has been too small. For a person who's grown up in a village, it is incomprehensibly huge. It's a huge walled structure that holds the temple. It's on top of the Temple Mount. You can see it again from a long ways off. It takes up a good portion of the eastern part of Jerusalem. And as you walk into the walls, the outer walls of the temple, you realize this building is huge. In today's measurements, it's between three and four football fields in, in area. It's huge. It's surrounded by this complex of, of stone stairs. And as Jesus' feet hit those first steps, the anticipation builds. What is going to happen what is going to happen in those walls? When he walks in, will people be singing, Hosanna, Hosanna? Will they be welcoming their deliverer, this promised Messiah? Will Jesus bless the faithful people inside who are gathered to worship God? Will he start working miracles? Your hands are maybe sweating, they're shaking a little bit as you follow him through these gates. It's hot sun. It's the Middle East, right? Hot sun as you walk in, but you, when you walk in the gates, there's shade. It sort of darkens for a little bit. Get a little bit of relief. You can hear some noise, and you're wondering, what am I going to see? You step out into the light again into this huge open courtyard. It takes about a third of the temple complex, this outer courtyard where you walk into it. And there are no shouts of Hosanna. People are not waving palm fronds. They're not raising their hands in worship. In fact, very little of what you see matches what was in your mind. Instead, you've got the sights and the sounds and the smells of the marketplace. Who's, who's been in a Middle Eastern marketplace before? 
It's noisy. It's crowded. It's sweaty. It's, it, it, it's overwhelming. It's a mass of humanity and goods and services and noise, and it is intimidating. And it would be especially intimidating for a person who had not been in Jerusalem before. Crowds, merchants, livestock, business, all around you, merchants are crying out to people to come. Exchange your Tyrian silver for the temple drachma to pay your tax. Get your half shekel here. Another merchant tugs me at one of the disciples' robes and says, Hey, I've got here, I've, I've got a, the perfect sacrifice for you. It's a, it's a lamb, it's one year old, it's without blemish, exactly as the law demands for you a special price. And other people are calling out the same thing, competing for that business. And you ask yourself, what is happening? What is going on? And you look back at Jesus, and he's looking around and taking in these same sights. See him stoop down. I'd stoop down, but my neck hurts too much right now. <laughs> he, 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 he stoops down. And he picks up some ropes off the, from the debris and on the floor around him, and he starts sorting it in his hands. And you see that his face has changed. I hit pause. And that, what do you see in his face? Anger, sorrow. In, incredulousness, right? incredulity, outrage, indignance. Hit play again. You see Jesus take a deep breath, and he walks up to one of the tables, and he picks up a lockbox, and he pours the coins out, and they scatter across the floor. And people start making different noises. He takes that table, and he flips it over. Who's been to boot camp, has <laughs> seen a bed flip, flips it over. Right? He takes those cords that he's now put into a makeshift whip and he starts swinging them. And he starts driving this brace of oxen out towards one of the doors. And as he passes by a pen, he opens that up and sheep go out. And he starts driving out the merchants as well. And he gets up to the table where they're selling the, the pigeons. And he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And they start running. There's noise, there's screaming, there's yelling, there's grumbling as people flee. Some of the merchants grab some of their things, their coins, their uh, herd, their livestock. They're grabbing cages of birds. And soon the courtyard is relatively empty and you can see Jesus in the middle of it, again, in that hot Middle Eastern sun. He's breathing heavily. He's sweating. He's looking around. And again, you start thinking, what just happened? Soon the people who are sort of keeping their distance start coming in. Some of them are shaking their fists. You realize that the drama is not over. One of them says, what signs do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus is still exhausted from the effort. And he says this, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Everyone gasps. You gasp. And it says, 
What do you mean? It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? You hear people jeering and shouting and grumbling and, and, and talking. And again, you ask, what just happened? Well, the short answer, of course, is that Jesus got angry. As we press deeper into this, we might consider why he got angry, or what was the focus of his anger, or how he expressed his anger. In fact, it is tempting to make this story, uh, as I often have, all about Jesus' anger. And perhaps one of the reasons that I do this, maybe some of you do this also, is it helps me justify my own wrath. But perhaps more important than the question of what just happened is what does it mean? And so as we consider both these questions today, this is the sermon in a nutshell to speak, we'll see that Jesus' righteous anger has righteous reasons. And Jesus' righteous anger has a righteous response. But Jesus' righteous anger also has righteous results. So again, Jesus' righteous anger is righteous in its reasons, its response, and its results. This is not the only time that Jesus is angry in Scripture. So as we look into the righteous reasons, we can, we can sort of take a look through Scripture at the different times we might see Jesus angry. Find what David Helms would call, would call a melodic line that sort of sings through those and, and gives us some common chords to listen to, to, to consider. One of those that we see is that Jesus gets angry whenever anything gets between him and the people he came to save. Jesus gets angry when people are blocked, diverted, hindered, or otherwise hampering, hampered from accessing his person and his providence. In John chapter 11 at Lazarus' tomb, Jesus gets angry angry when death and hopelessness get between the people and the one who brings hope and life. In Luke chapter 13, it's the religious leaders and their rules that try to get between a suffering woman on the Sabbath and the one who can heal. Mark chapter 10, it is his own disciples who insert themselves between the children and the one who calls people to come to him as a child. In Matthew chapter 23, he is furious at religious hypocrites who put their burdens and their false teachings and the rules that they themselves will not follow between the people and the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. And here in today's passage, Jesus is angered that the marketplace, the commerce, the profit, the greed, the distraction are getting between the people and the God that they have come to worship. We ought to ask, at what would Jesus be angry today? This week I sent an email out to the congregation asking for people to give me an answer to that. I said, what do you believe gets between you individually and Jesus? And then the second question was, what do you believe gets between us as a congregation and Jesus? And thank you for lots of responses. 
A common one that I heard from many people was pride, both in the sense, one person wrote, of being more wise than I am, or pride in the fact of not being worthy enough for him, or thinking that I can do it by myself, or by comparing myself to others. Others said selfishness and the desires for comforts other than God. Others listed the worries of this world and the prioritization of, of work, schedule, self, time eaters, distractions, phones, internet, social media, news, sports. Others mentioned worries that have kingdom focus without kingdom trust. These are hard ones, right? Trying to do God's work for him instead of seeking God's guidance and trusting him. One that really hit my heart hard was the worry about unsaved children and loved ones. One person combined many of these when she wrote, this is just beautiful. I often find that the three most difficult barriers put between the Lord and I are built from culture, comfort, and fear. Living in a pluralistic world is difficult. We have culture on one hand telling us what's best for us, and God on the other. When we think about it logically, the choice is simple, clear, but when we are immersed in everyday life, it becomes very easy to forget that God is above science, above politics, and above the laws of man. And that is the second question, what is between us as a congregation and Jesus? Again, the most common answer was pride, including collective pride, a lack of humility, and that often leads to legalism and judgment rather than loving care. Another common thread was an emphasis on knowing about Jesus without knowing him, without meeting him. Being hearers of the word, not doers only, was another theme. One wrote, it is very easy in a congregational setting to think someone else will respond to the calling or that the scripture or the sermon is perfect for someone else. The worries of this life, life itself, distractions, business, priorities, even COVID uh, brought up. One of our members sent me a photo of a sticky note he has on his computer. On it is written, pride must die in you, or nothing of heaven can live in you. One is death, the other is life. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Amen. Another wrote, I think the core of the answer is short for both of those questions. The devil comes between us all, as alluded to in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes only to kill, or to steal and kill and destroy. The details of the answer are as varied as there are people, kind of like a squirrel, we are easily distracted by what the devil puts in front of us to steal our time, destroy our unity with one another, and kill our relationship with Jesus. And then again, this woman wrote, people in the congregation judging one another, or judging another's depth of love for Christ based on what they see externally, since many of us do not have personal insight into another's life. I also wonder about the lack of enthusiasm and song, which may be me misinterpreting things, because I don't know what people feel when they're singing, but I do know how it feels to sing gospel with the old-timers, Gramps on the guitar and the neighbor on the banjo and aunts and uncles harmonizing, so joyful and uplifting, and I know what it feels like to sing in the, to the Lord in private worship, a warm, soft glow that coats the whole body. I don't always feel these things when I'm singing in church. I would be curious to know what other people feel. 
But whether it's my own inhibitions or a general lack of enthusiasm, I supposed either would certainly get between Jesus and ourselves during congregational worship. These are common threads, pride, selfishness, worries, comfort, distractions, work, judgment, knowing without being, going through the motions of worship without worshiping. And these are not new. In the Old Testament, God said to Isaiah that he was angry because these people draw near with their mouths and and they honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And in the temple, in our, our passage today, Jesus saw the same thing. And it angered him. All these things can come between us people in need of a saving relationship with Jesus and that same Jesus who is reaching out to us. And I think we can agree that these are reasons for which Jesus is righteously angry. Praise God that he is righteous not only in the reasons for his anger, but in its response. Remember, though Jesus was fully man, He is fully God. He is the one, the only one, who has the power not just to heal, but to destroy. Jesus' response to this blasphemous practice in his temple, these practices that were getting between him and his people, his response could have been much more severe. He could have struck the merchants dead. He could have called down fire to cleanse the temple literally. And we might think, well, but Jesus, right, he's, he's loving, and so he wouldn't do these things, right? And for those of us like me who are raised with a picture of a soft, always gentle, usually passive Jesus hanging on the wall, kind blue eyes, we have to acknowledge that his response is not soft. It is not gentle, and it certainly is not passive. Now, there are times when it is appropriate to respond to evil with a soft word, with a gentle reproach, or even to overlook an offense, but there are other times that demand sharp rebuke or even violent action. This is one of those times. Jesus is not responding in anger to a personal affront. He is not responding in anger because the floor is dirty. He is angry that people are being distracted, obstructed from the God of all creation, the God of their fathers, the God who delivered them from slavery, and the God who had sent Jesus into this world to save it. And so Jesus' righteous response Response, though measured and restrained, is harsh, focused, and violent. He forms a whip out of cords or or ropes. He pours out coins. He flips over tables, and he drives out the merchants and the livestock from the temple. And again, we see Jesus' righteous response of anger other places in the gospel. Jesus emptied the world's understanding of death and hopelessness when he brought Lazarus back to life. 
He overturned the false practices of the Sabbath when he healed a woman on it. He drove even his own disciples out to make room for children to come to him. He threw away burdens. He destroyed false teachings. He swept away, away the hypocrites to make a clear path for people to come to their redemption. Later in the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus pouring out and overturning and driving out again. In Jerusalem, next time though, he pours out not his other people's coins, but he pours out his blood on the cross as he offers himself as a perfect sacrifice. And in doing so, he overturns the tables of condemnation and the world's hopeless and relentless march toward hell. As God laid his sinful iniquity on Christ's innocent body, hung on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The scripture says, with his wounds we have been healed. And in two weeks, we are going to celebrate how on the third day, he drove out, overturned a stone in front of the tomb. And by doing so, drove out Satan and death itself. Do you think he will not overturn or pour out our riches, overturn our tables, and drive out the obstacles in our lives and in our church that are getting between us and him. The prosperity gospel idolizes comfort and tells us that if we will put our faith in Jesus, he will give us wealth and possessions and health and well-being. And the gospel of Jesus says that he will take all of that and pour it out to keep it from coming between him and us. Our pride tells us that God helps those who help themselves, and it idolizes the self-made man. It glorifies the strong, and it even tells us to put ourselves, or America, first. The gospel of Jesus Christ overturns that pride like a money changer's table. It commands us to serve one another, count anything that we would call righteous in ourselves as dung, Rejoice in our weaknesses. Seek to become least. Maybe even go into one of those countries that must come after ours. That we might decrease and Christ might increase. Satan tells us to fear him, to fear what he can do, fear what he can take away, our possessions, our jobs, our houses, our savings, our livelihood, our status, our security, even our lives. The gospel of Jesus drives out that fear. It says, fear not those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that Jesus also then drives out death itself when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, he says, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Praise be to Jesus, the Son of God. May he empty us of our false comfort, overturn our pride, and drive out our fears so that just as he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem and renewed it, 
he might cleanse and renew the temple of our lives and the temple of our corporate lives, which he says are the new temple of the Holy Spirit. So what in your life is standing between you and Jesus? What in our church is standing between us and Jesus? May we not be worried that God might pour it out or overturn it or drive it out. We should be pleading that he would do just that. And we can be doing that. We, we, we can be eager for such disruption in our lives because Jesus' righteous anger is righteous not only in its reasons and its response, but in its results. So back to our passage today, and instead of looking at what happened, let's look at what it means. And I think we find that in two verses, starting at verse 17. It says, his disciples remembered what was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The disciples remembered. First, they remembered in the moment. Later, they will remember the past. When Jesus cleansed the temple, his disciples remembered scripture. They remember what was written, zeal for your house will consume me, Psalm 69.9. And it should be self-evident for them to remember that scripture, they must have known the scripture. They knew it well enough that when they saw Jesus pouring out coins and overturning tables and driving out people and, and livestock from the temple, that the first thing that came to mind was scripture has been fulfilled. Then we read that the Jews challenged Jesus and demanded a sign from him to show his authority to do these things. And Jesus responds, as he often does, with a parable that people are not going to understand. And the people, and likely his own disciples, misunderstand it in the moment. But just as he would explain parables later to those who continue to follow him and ask him, later on, the the disciples will remember, verse 25, I'm sorry, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered all that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You've probably heard the saying, seeing is believing. That isn't always true, and often, as I, I, I said before during the Lord's table, Remembering is believing. And so while Jesus' righteous anger is certainly an answer to the question of what happened, the disciples' remembering and believing is the, ample, the answer to what does it mean. It's the reason behind the entire Gospel of John. Chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. That's what it means. So friends, beloved, what can we do? How can we help others to know scripture so intimately that when we see God at work, we immediately see his scripture being fulfilled? One way is by joining us as we continue to read through the Bible this year. If you have not been following along with us, that's okay. You don't have to start at the beginning. Grab a bookmark on your way out and join us in Judges. What a fun place to start. 
Pastor Josh has been asking throughout this sermon if you would like to get with one other person and read through the book of John together. That offer still stands. Many have already taken it up. Consider joining the the survey of the New Testament uh, class that's going on or continuing over the next several weeks. Again, you don't need to start at the beginning. You can jump right in. They're about ready to get into Romans. And then how can we How can we help each other to know Jesus so intimately that when we see God at work, we believe? If you're a mature Christian, are you discipling another person? Are you calling that person to imitate you as you imitate Christ? And do you have someone who is doing that for you, who is discipling you? Do you need help finding such a relationship? We'd love to do that also. You could consider also joining a small group. We're going to have sign-ups in a couple weeks for those uh, who want to join a a new group or an existing group. So here's the truth, right? There is something between you and Jesus today. If you have not yet found your hope in him, what that is is your unforgiven sin. Your reliance on yourself, your rebellion against him. But even if you are, or especially if you are a Christ follower, you know as well as I do that the things of this world, right, the desires of the eye, the desires of the flesh, the pride of the life are standing between me and Jesus, between you and Jesus, between us and Jesus. And if we're honest, we are often the ones who want them to stay there. When Jesus cleansed the table, he poured out, overturned, and and drove out people's livelihoods, their accepted practices, their sense of normalcy. And he had to do that because these things were getting in the way between them and him. It is and was probably a scary thing for that to happen. Not just because of Jesus' anger, but because what he poured out, what he overturned, what he drove out were the things that people relied upon, that they desired, that they sought, and they treasured. And the problem was that they relied upon them. They desired, sought, and treasured them more than they relied upon, desired, sought, and treasured God. If Jesus were to cleanse the temple today, both the temples of our individual lives and that of our church, we would likewise lose some of the things that we rely upon, that we desire, that we seek, that we treasure. We would lose things that we find important, normal, comforting, even essential, and we would lose them because they're coming between us and Jesus. And Jesus is both righteously angry at them and eternally merciful in his desire to remove them, not to deprive us, but to embrace us. And there are two ways that we consider, we might consider what it would look like if he were to do so, right? If he were to cleanse the temples of our lives and our church. One is with fear, fearing what we would lose. And the other is with faith, remembering, knowing what we will gain. The difference between these two is whether we rely upon the false promises of this world and its prince or remember the true 
and eternal promises of God. So whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, would you just bear with me and, and hear these two challenges for the week? Join with me in this, these two simple steps of faith. The first one, would you pray with me that God would reveal to us what is standing between us and Jesus individually? What skepticism is keeping you from the one who is perfect in knowledge? What are you using as a crutch to keep from falling into the arms of your Savior? What are you desiring more than the one who is worth desiring? What are you clinging to for safety to avoid dangerous acts of faith in the only one who can give us true security? What normalcy in this world is keeping you from extraordinary in the kingdom? And second, would you then pray that Jesus would take whatever that is in our lives and in the lives of the church and pour it out, flip it over, drive it out? Would you pray that he would give us the courage to drop our burdens and take on his yoke, to leave the world's comforts and find rest in Jesus, to renounce the temptations of this world, to follow his voice into kingdom work, and to forget these false promises of Satan and remember the eternal promises of God found in the scripture. Let's pray. So, Lord, I, I confess that I often respond in the first way, that I am afraid of what I will lose. And that even when I, even when I act in, in what looks like outside as faithfulness to, to, to get rid of things or, 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 or to at least pay less attention to things so that I might, might spend more time getting to know you, that often I do them so that you won't take them away from me because I worship them more than you. Lord, uh, Pour that out, Lord, for all of us. Turn it over and drive it out. May we seek to worship you in truth, uh, to, to give glory to you, uh, the glory that your name desires. Uh, may we be willing to leave the normalcy, the comforts uh, for the extraordinary, for the, for the adventure in your life a life in your kingdom. We pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.